Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. Uh, One thing is certain in this universe, every single one of you has a friend who has already complained about Christmas displays being out in retail stores. And if you don't, then you're the friend. You're the one who is stunned that every September... I can't believe it. There's Christmas trees at the Christmas tree store. What are they doing? It's, uh, it's a silly outrage, and it's great, but it happens. And so here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to pour a little fuel on the fire for you, and we're going to zoom forward our holidays all the way to Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. It's today. This is what happens when you study the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. You land on Palm Sunday six months before you get to Resurrection Sunday, and uh, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a really fascinating aspect of the way Mark has written his gospel. Uh, chapters 1 through 10 cover roughly three years in the life of Jesus. Chapters 11 through 16 slow to a crawl, and we get through one week in the life of Christ in those chapters. It's an awesome thing. Uh, And so I'm excited that today we start Holy Week, (laughs) and we're going to be in it for a while together. It's beautiful. Uh, My wife, Melissa, and I got married uh, right after I graduated college, right before she graduated college. And so uh, after we got married, we lived in a tiny uh, apartment on the campus at our very tiny school. Our apartment was about the size of this podium. And... uh, and so I want you to imagine this scene with me. I, I went from living in an apartment with my bros to living in an apartment uh, with my new wife. But imagine this scene. Imagine Melissa and I, we go off, we get married, we come back, I drop her off at our tiny apartment, and then I, I move back into the dorm to hang out with my friends. And we've, we've got a sweet intramural basketball squad. You don't even know how good the vanilla gorillas are at basketball, but we just utterly dominated. And every night we're up late playing video games and we're just, you know, just doing what bros do together. And then you come to me and you say, Busby, aren't you married? Don't you, don't you have a wife? Well, yeah, I do. She's over in the apartment. Shouldn't you be with her? What are you talking about? I'm having a good time. She knows I'm here. She's okay with it, I think. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just going to be here for a little bit longer. No, listen, Cody, you've got a wife now. That's, that's your priority. This is the relationship that matters most. And I might say, I, look, I know that. I know I'm married. I, I have a ring. We exchange some words to each other. We cut a cake. I, I know all of that. And look, I'm going I'm to hang out with her on her birthday. And I'll see her on our anniversary. I'll, I mean, I'll do that. And, and so and th- this is fine. This is fine. This is comfortable. That would be very weird, profoundly weird for uh, a newlywed to not begin new life with his new bride. That'd be very strange if I got the relationship wrong. Relationship requires a certain response. I respond to my wife in a way different than I respond to my friends. I I respond to my wife different than I respond to an IRS agent. I respond to my wife different than some weird uncle that lives in the Nevada desert and wears a tinfoil hat. I, I I belong to her. She belongs to me. That relationship calls for a certain type of response. Her identity as my wife, my response to her as my wife need to coincide together. It would be bad to get that wrong. 
Can you imagine how much worse it is to get the relationship wrong between me and Christ? His identity requires a certain response from me. What if I get that response wrong? What if I mess up the identity part? I mess up the response part. Everything's messed up. What does that mean? It can mean some really bad things. If you're a believer, it would certainly mean a really messed up walk with Jesus. And if you're not a believer, you're not going to come any closer to faith as long as you think about Christ wrong. Do you know what Palm Sunday is all about? If I were to give you a quiz, one question, what's the main theme of Palm Sunday? Here's what it is. The identity of Jesus Christ. Who is He? And then, how do I respond in relationship to who He is? What kind of response does He evoke from me? This morning, we're going to talk a lot about the identity of Jesus and its implications on our lives. Uh, We're going to use the word Messiah a lot today. We're asking the question, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? In case you're not familiar with this word, the word Messiah... Uh, is a, um, it's a term that means, it's literally translated the anointed one. And the way we understand this word on this side of Palm Sunday and this side of Easter, we understand that the Messiah is the divine one who came to rescue God's people from sin and hell and death and to give us eternal life. That's how we understand Messiah. But on the original Palm Sunday... People in attendance that day understood the word Messiah in a very different way. They get some things right, they get some things wrong, but Jesus, on this Sunday, when he enters Jerusalem to the praises of all the people, he is making a profound statement about who he is, and that has implications on our lives. The two big questions that emerge from our passage are, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? What does that mean for me? Those are significant questions. So my purpose in preaching this text today is to illuminate the person of Christ and then also to clarify our response. Our passage is kind of long today. It breaks down into three really neat, tidy sections. Each section gives us one aspect of the identity of Jesus and our appropriate response to that identity. All right, so I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 10. I'll start in verse 46. We're going to go to chapter 11, verse 11. So, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. Who's the they? In case you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, the they are Jesus and the disciples and this group of other religious pilgrims, travelers, all on their way to Jerusalem. Verse 46, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. 
Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right. I want to share with you from our passage today three aspects of the identity of Christ and the expected responses from us. I've tried to put these just as painfully simple as I can. You can feel free to elaborate as much as you'd like in your notes. But what are these aspects of Christ's identity that the story gives us? First of all, from the story of Bartimaeus, we learn this. We learn that Jesus is compassionate, and therefore we believe. He is compassionate, we believe. What's his identity? He is the compassionate Messiah. The one who loves, the one who is near to the broken, the one who knows you by name. He is compassionate, therefore we believe. So if you've been with us these past couple of weeks, we've been following Jesus and his group on their uh, travels to Jerusalem. And our story today starts in a city called Jericho, but it ends in Jerusalem. Jericho is a city a little bit outside of Jerusalem. It's the closest thing to sort of a commuter town that there was in Jesus' day. In fact, a lot of people who worked at the temple complex in Jerusalem, they would actually live in Jericho, and then they would walk up to Jerusalem to serve their two weeks or whatever it was at the temple and then return back home to life in Jericho. So Jericho is the road, it's, it's on the road to Jerusalem. You're not going to get around it, you've got to go through it. And remember, again, this crowd that's with Jesus, it's his disciples, it's these other pilgrims. We think probably other Galilean pilgrims. You see, in Jewish religious life, there are certain holidays that are pilgrimage holidays. And the expectation here was that if you were able to, you would reorder your life so that you could celebrate the holiday in the holy city, in Jerusalem. Uh, And so it's a natural time of year for there to be a lot of traffic on that road through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. But now Jesus has this group of people with him. And these people know something about Jesus. Already he has a reputation in and around the region of Galilee. 
He's not some unknown quantity. His reputation has spread far and wide. Remember in our study of Mark, every place Jesus goes, he's met with crowds that know him and are crazed about him, but they think of him primarily as this fascinating miracle worker. But now, the tide's starting to turn. There's word that maybe he's the Messiah. If you remember in our study last week, we're told that the disciples are walking behind Jesus and they're astonished. And then the crowd is behind them and they are afraid. There's this messianic tension in the air. There's this feeling that Jesus might be the one. He's the one we've waited for for so long. And when he steps into Jerusalem, there's going to be a showdown with Roman authorities. That's sort of the, the setting, the context of what's happening here. So Mark tells us that as Jesus is going through Jericho, about to leave the town, There's a blind beggar on the side of the road named Bartimaeus, and he calls out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And how does the crowd respond? Verse 48, many rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Good for Bartimaeus. Good for Bartimaeus to keep his focus on Christ and to not let the rebuke of the ignorant crowds keep him from Jesus. How does Jesus feel about vulnerable and hurting people who are kept away from him. Well, earlier in chapter 10, back in verse 14, you remember this scene? People are bringing their children to Jesus for him to bless them. And what did the disciples do? Get those kids out of here. What are you doing? Jesus is so busy, he doesn't have time for this. Whatever they said, right? But we're told they rebuked them. The disciples rebuked the parents, shooed the kids away, tried to get them out of there. And how did Jesus respond? Chapter 10, verse 14, he was indignant with his disciples. Jesus responds viscerally when the hurting, the voiceless, the broken are shoved out by society, especially when they are shoved out by the church. Jesus has no room for that. It evokes holy and righteous anger out of him. So Jesus, here's Bartimaeus, over the crowd, and he locks in on him and calls him to come. And how fickle is this silly crowd, right? One moment they're rebuking Bartimaeus, hey, shut up! And then Jesus says, call him over, and then what do they do? Hey, cheer up, good news, Bartimaeus! (laughs) You're the star, right this way, oh, here you go, here's Jesus. So silly. It's a significant thing that when Bartimaeus calls on Jesus, he calls him the son of David. I want us to take a moment and think about that title, that phrase that Bartimaeus puts on Jesus. It's a big deal. It's a really important title. Um, To call Jesus the son of David is to say that Jesus is the descendant of the great King David. And not only that, but that Jesus is the one who is to be the forever king of Israel. It is a loaded term. It's a messianic term. How did Bartimaeus know to call Jesus this? We don't know. Mark doesn't give us those details. He doesn't let us know what Bartimaeus has heard or or what the Lord has just given Bartimaeus in terms of knowledge. We just don't know those things. It could be that he heard rumors that Jesus was the Messiah. However Bartimaeus lands on this information, it doesn't matter. The fact that he speaks it, that's the big deal. You see, many, many times throughout the prophetic books of the Old Testament, uh, the prophets told us that the Messiah would come from King David's ancestry. 
Uh, and what's more, God told David this himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David that his seed would reign on his throne forever. That's, so that's looking ahead to a descendant of David's who will be not a mere human, but rather he's the Messiah, the anointed one, not just any king, but the king of kings who's come to reign. That son of David title signifies a person of power, a person of prestige, a person of glory, the one to whom kings bow down. And how does Bartimaeus leverage the title? Son of David, have mercy on me. He brings all the might and the majesty of the Messiah to this crossroads of his point of need. He makes this assumption that the Messiah, the son of David, is a compassionate Messiah, and Bartimaeus is exactly right. The blind man sees the situation better than anyone else in the story that day. Verse 51, Jesus asks Bartimaeus what seems like a really weird question. What do you want me to do for you? It's an odd question for Jesus to ask. I mean, he has to know the man is blind. He has to know the man has lived a less than privileged life. And just even right there in front of Jesus, he's been victimized in a way. So what's with this question? Well, this question is pretty standard for Jesus. Maybe not these precise words, but this whole interaction is really standard for Jesus. You see, time and again in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus interacting with individuals so as to develop faith or to coax faith out of them. He's a Messiah to be believed in, not just some fancy miracle worker to do our bidding. And Jesus knows that Bartimaeus needs something better than new sight. He, he, needs, he needs new faith. And so Jesus presses in on Bartimaeus, and something in Bartimaeus' answer tells Jesus that faith is present here. And that's a big deal. It's a remarkable thing. This healing is different from other healings. Other times when Jesus does uh, heals sick people or afflicted people, he often involves touch. And even in a previous encounter with a blind man, When Jesus healed him, you remember what he did? He spit in the dirt, he made mud, put it on his eyes, and then told him to go wash. But this time, Jesus doesn't heal that way. Jesus just heals with his words. Coincidentally, that's the same way Jesus casts out demons, is just with words. That's also the same way Jesus controls storms, is just with words. And here in this moment, he speaks the word, and Bartimaeus' sight is returned to him. So what kind of Messiah is Jesus. He's a compassionate Messiah. He hears the voice of the hurting. He defends them against the crowd of rebukers. He has power over disease, and he loves you enough to awaken faith in you. What if Jesus were to ask you the same question he asked Bartimaeus? What if he were to come to you and say, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't ask that question as if he's a genie that grants wishes. He asks it as a loving father who's in a relationship with his child. My dad's name is Don, and uh, I love my dad like crazy. I have a great relationship with my dad. We talk every week. Uh, He lives in Oklahoma. If he asked me this question, Cody, what do you want me to do for you? Do you know how I would answer? I would say, Dad, 
I love you so much. Would you buy me some hair plugs, please? I'm just, I'm not really that bald. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what if I did? What would, what would that reveal about my relationship with my father? Not much of a relationship there. My dad can't buy anything for me that's going to be greater than the love and support, the compassion that I already have from him. That's my great treasure. That's what Jesus' question is all about to you and to Bartimaeus. His compassion towards us ought to result in our unwavering faith in him. It's a compassion that leads us to believe, to trust. See, Jesus knows not only Bartimaeus' blindness, he knows his heart. He knows your heart and mine. He knows what we need. Jesus recognizes faith in Bartimaeus and heals him. And I love the way this episode ends. We're told immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I think all the way to Jerusalem. Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah? He's the compassionate Messiah in whom we believe, in whom we trust. There's a second aspect of his identity on display in our passage this morning. When we get to chapter 11, here's what we learn about Jesus We learn, second, he has all authority, and we submit. Jesus has all authority, therefore we submit to him. Now, in verses 1 through 6, we just have a lot of what what just seem like story details. Go to this place, find a donkey, get the donkey. If someone says, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? This is what you say to him. The disciples went and did that thing. It just seems like filler almost. I'm telling you, one of the most amazing things in this whole story happens in this little section right here. So in verses 1 through 3, Jesus coaches his disciples on where to go, what to do, where to find the young donkey, the colt, and what to say to the owner when they take it. They're to say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And Jesus doesn't seem to have any prior relationship with the owner of the donkey. He just knows He knows where it will be. He knows what will happen. He knows what needs to be said. You see, Jesus orchestrates this whole scene according to his sovereign knowledge. His authority here is on full display, even in minutia, like how he will get into the city, how they will procure that transportation, how they will soothe the worrisome donkey owner. The sovereignty of Christ is not just in the grand, the magnificent, the mighty. It's also in the tiny things like this right here. And do you know what the most amazing part of this story is? It happens in verse 4 and in verse 6. In verse 4, after Jesus has given the disciples, these two disciples, the instructions, we're told they went. They went and found a colt outside. They went, and then verse 6, the owner of the donkey says, hey, what are you doing? They answered just as Jesus had told them to do. So, don't miss this. Jesus gave instructions. Here's where to go. Here's what to say. The disciples went. The disciples said. It is a Palm Sunday miracle that the disciples obeyed Jesus in this. It is not a small thing. Do not just breeze over this like, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's normal. Mark has shown us time and again how thick these guys are. 
How little they listen, how little they perceive and understand. And so even in this small thing for Jesus to say, get the donkey, speak to the owner, and they do exactly as Jesus says is a big deal. Everything in creation responds to the authority of Jesus, submits to the authority of Jesus. He's the ultimate spiritual authority, so he speaks and demons flee. He's the authority over all things made, so he speaks and storms stop. He's the authority over all of life, so he speaks and sickness is healed or the dead rise. But people, people are the only things in all of God's creation that don't do what God says. That's us. It's the way of so many people that we relate to Jesus just as some sort of kind, benevolent force, but not as the almighty authority of all things and especially our lives. We want Jesus to help us when we're sick. We want him to calm our anxieties. We want him to help us get the things we want. And then we want him to one day reward us with heaven However, not so many people want a Jesus who tells us explicitly how to handle our money or our marriages or our sexual ethics or our service to others or our speech and so on and so on. If Jesus is only there to do your bidding when you command and he's not the almighty authority over your life, And the question has to be asked, who is God in that arrangement? If he just does what you tell him, you're the authority, he's the doer, he's the fixer. So oftentimes we treat Jesus like we treat our doctors. You go to the doctor because you don't feel well, and you tell the doctor, make me better. The doctor assesses the situation, gives a diagnosis, gives a prescription. And a part of the doctor's advice is almost always going to be, hey, you could do with a lifestyle change. That would help in so many ways. And we say, yeah, 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 I'll do that. And then we go to our cars and pull a whoopie pie out of the glove box and chow down on it, right? We've all done it. Right? Look, Jesus is not your tiny cosmic butler tasked with just fulfilling your commands. He is the very God of creation to whom we, we must submit. Now, too often the idea of submitting to authority has a very negative connotation to it. And that's increasingly true in the current state of our culture where authority structures at all levels are increasingly distrusted. Anymore, the only authority that people trust is the self. doesn't matter the title, the office, the thing. The only one I can trust anymore is myself. So when I say that Jesus is the authority to whom we have to submit, you might bristle a bit, especially if you assume that the authority of the compassionate God of creation is anything like the corrupt, sinful authority of people. But submission to God's authority is a glad submission. It's a joyful submission. It's not like submitting to a tyrant. It's like submitting to a loving father. His authority doesn't beat you down. It doesn't rob you of personhood. It doesn't command you to obey just because. 
His authority lifts you, it forgives you, it loves you, it gives you new life. His authority has yeses that lead to life, and it has noes that protect you from destruction. That's what it's like to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says things like, deny yourself, take up your cross, the first shall be last, have faith like a child, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, Leave your nets and I will make you fishers of men. Or whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. When Jesus says those, th- those things, we gladly say yes. Oh, what if, whatever you want. Because there's no greater treasure, no greater love, no greater God than this, the almighty Messiah who is compassionate and who is the authority over our lives. Christians who do not walk in submission to the authority of Jesus Christ live miserable lives. Miserable. We've got these authority issues. I'm I'm the boss of my kingdom. I'm going to do what I want, how I want. Give me heaven, but I'll take today on my own. Brother and sister, that is a lousy way to walk with Jesus. You're meant for better than that. And his authority is life, abundant life, wonderful life as we walk with him. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? Compassionate? Authority? One last characteristic. He is the promised king, and we celebrate. Third aspect of his identity, he is the promised king, and we celebrate. Now, once the donkey is in hand, they bring the donkey to Jesus, and what follows is just monumental. Uh, People place their cloaks on the donkey. Jesus sits on it, and then the people begin to make this sort of, uh, it's a makeshift red carpet, so to speak, into the city as Jesus rides the donkey Uh, into Jerusalem. And as he rides in, the people around him erupt in celebration. Now remember, who who are these people? These are, I'm saying these are Galilean pilgrims who have been traveling down the road with Jesus for days now, sensing the tension, the building tension. And and so now Jesus sits on this donkey and they lose their ever-loving minds as he rides into the city. They erupt in praise in verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And just so we don't forget, I number Bartimaeus in that choir of singers. Remember the end of chapter 10? Immediately he receives his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus is leaving Jericho. I think Bartimaeus leaves and goes with him. If you were Bartimaeus, how loud would you sing? How high would you jump? How undignified would you be in praise to the God who gave you life and sight? Oh, you'd lose it. The question we ought to ask about this scene, two questions. Why do the people go crazy? Why do they lose their minds here? And, and what does it all mean? The reason they go crazy is because there's, there's a story that goes along with Jesus on this donkey riding into Jerusalem. 
it, it fulfills a prophecy that God's people had long looked forward to. And so remember, there's these messianic expectations uh, in this whole scene building up to this. And Jesus, you'll remember in our study of Mark, Jesus time and again has kept his identity as the Messiah quiet. He's only talked about it in private with his disciples. In fact, he's instructed people not to tell others about him yet. And why? Why does Jesus engage this messianic secret, as we call it? Well, again, it's because the people he was ministering to had a different understanding of what the Messiah would be. They thought political leader, military leader, kick Roman tail, reestablish Israel as the world power. That's what they thought. They had no other categories for thinking of the Messiah. So Jesus wants to keep all of it secret so he can maintain his plan, do his ministry, proclaim the kingdom of God, and go to the cross. So when Jesus sits on the donkey and rides into Jerusalem, it fulfills this prophecy we'll talk about in a second. It's the first time Jesus has publicly declared, I'm the Messiah. It is unmistakable. There's no question the message that is sent in this scene. Jesus, for the first time, publicly declares, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, and the people lose it as a result. So what's the meaning of the scene? What's the big deal here? Well, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, a prophet named Zechariah described this very scene. So if you'll jump with me into the way back machine, we'll go back to Zechariah. And uh, you can turn to Zechariah 9 if you want, or you can just hang tight and listen, and uh, I'll fill you in. So, once upon a time, God's people quit worshiping God. Generation after generation, they rejected God. And after years and years and years of God's grace and their rejection, finally, God let his judgment roll on his people. Enemy nations came, they destroyed God's people, they kidnapped them and took them into exile into foreign lands, drug them away from their homes, their families, their temples, their jobs, their language, their culture, took them to other places, and there they lived in exile for about 70 years. After 70 years was up, God put things in motion so that his people could return from exile back to their homes, back to the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And that's an amazing thing. It's a moment of great celebration. It's incredible that they once were exiles far away and now they're back home in Jerusalem, but their joy was short-lived. They were quickly deflated because of the hardship of their new lives, the threat of enemies around them, uh, and the lack of vision for rebuilding the city and their lives, as well as just their own stupid sin. In the midst of this scene, God has a prophet, a man named Zechariah, whom God speaks through in order to encourage and strengthen his deflated people. Zechariah is given several hope-filled prophecies to deliver to God's people. The intention is to strengthen them, to bolster them for the work they have, and really to increase their hope and their strength. And these prophecies, uh, they cover a lot of different material. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9 has this prophecy about the king returning to Israel. It talks first about God's judgment on Israel's enemies. That's a good thing. If you're a downtrodden people, a defeated people, you, you need relief from your enemies. When God says, I'm going I'm to wipe them out, you say, amen, hallelujah. 
But that's not where it ends. What happens next is enemies are put down, and then the prophet describes this scene of rejoicing and praise when the king returns. It it reads in part this way in Zechariah 9. He says to God's people, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. This is spoken some four or five hundred years before Jesus rides this donkey into Jerusalem. For centuries, God's people hold on to this promise. Who's the king the prophet speaks about? Not just any king. It's the king of kings, the Messiah king who will come and set everything right once and for all. And when he comes, he'll be riding on a donkey. Why is that significant? A horse is an implement of war. If the king rides the horse into the city, he's calling people to battle. But if he's riding the donkey in, he's saying, the battle's done, and I've got peace to give. Because of the Messiah's peace that he brings with him, the people of God are now what? I love this last line, prisoners of hope. You're captured by this hope in a Messiah who's coming, a Messiah who keeps his promises. Now, there's something that you know about Jesus that the people on this day did not know. You know the means by which the king will bring hope. The king will lay down his life for his people. He doesn't enter Jerusalem and go to a throne. He enters Jerusalem and he goes to the cross. He's orchestrated both the cries of Hosanna on this day and later in the week the cries that say crucify him. He's orchestrated all of that together. Because Jesus is the promised king who secures our peace through his death and resurrection. The cross is not an accident. It doesn't just happen and then the church has to invent a story to have it make sense. This was the intention all along. Jesus has repeatedly said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will die. Three days later, I will rise again. And he brings with him to his battered people peace and hope. And that is the stuff of Hosannas. Now, you came in here today dressed really nice. I don't know if anyone's told you that. You look very sharp. Let's be honest. A lot of us might be hoping that our nice church clothes don't betray what's really going on underneath. Struggles, sadness, hurt, doubt, fear, conflicts of every kind. Don't think you're in here alone today. We are a room full of people who hurt and who struggle. All of us know this well. But what I want you to do today is to take the reality that Jesus Christ is a king who keeps his promises and has secured for us peace and hope and put that in front of the trial you're facing. If he is so good as to fulfill a promise about the kind of transportation he will ride into the city, won't he also take care of the minutia in your life? 
Won't He also keep every little promise to you if He's so meticulous as to keep all of these promises? And if He meets this word that the King returns and brings with Him peace and hope for His people, can we not experience that here and now? We can. Now Jesus Christ goes to the cross, lays down His life, and there salvation is secured, the future is set. But the battle's not over, not yet. Because Revelation chapter 19 tells us there's another day when the king returns. Only in Revelation 19, he doesn't come on a donkey. He comes on a white horse. And he comes for war. And once and for all, he puts down the great enemy and sets right everything for his people. So that hope isn't something in the future to come. Hope is the eternity that we live in as we sing hosannas for all eternity to the king of our salvation. That ought to put iron in your legs and steel in your guts today to rest on the rock-solid promises of Jesus Christ. What kind of Messiah is he? Mark's given us this beautiful portrait today. He's compassionate. He's authoritative. He's the victorious promised king. Those things are amazing. And do you have a better understanding now, after spending time with Jesus in this way, of knowing how you should respond? How do we respond to him? We should believe like Bartimaeus. We should submit like these disciples who obeyed. We should celebrate like the crowd that ushered him into Jerusalem on that day. Did you know that the song the crowd sang on this day was well, not just random words they just made up on the fly. It's, it's a real song. It's something that existed in the hymnal, so to speak, of God's people for a long, long time, long before Palm Sunday. And some of these lines come from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When that song was originally sung long before Palm Sunday, it wasn't sung about the Messiah. It was not a song that anticipated the coming of the Messiah. It was a song that sang blessings over religious pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem to worship God for his goodness and his grace. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a song over worshipers. But then on the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem on this donkey... Bartimaeus and the choir with him sing this song in a different way. They sing it about Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you'll respond to Christ's invitation today to believe, to submit, to celebrate, then we're going to sing this song anew and we're going to sing it about you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's time to sing. Let's pray together. Father God, every one of us in here are like Bartimaeus. Blind until you give us sight. Dead until you give us life. We are heard by you. We are known by you. So, Lord God, 
let us come this morning to you in faith. We praise you for being the God of all love, all compassion, all mercy, as we sung this morning. A God of amazing grace. The God who gives sight to the blind, we praise you for this. In my prayer this morning, leading into this passage and, and now on the other side of it, is, Lord, that you would give spiritual sight to my friends this morning that don't know you as their Savior. Jesus, would you awaken faith in them that as they've seen who you are and heard what your love is like and seen the price that you paid for them, that they would trust wholly, completely in the one who has won their salvation. Lord, do a saving work this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are limping in their spiritual life, walking through trials, struggles of all kinds. Lord, you know the needs and you hear the cries. And when we ask you to have mercy on us, we don't have to beg and convince you or plead our case. This is just who you are, God of mercy, God of grace, God of compassion. So let us rest in you. Let us go back to our homes today, prisoners of hope, and look forward to that day when hope is realized in full and all things are set right. Thank you for the song you've given us to sing, a salvation song, a song of praise and adoration, a song that exalts the one who has saved us and done so only by grace, only by his love. Let that fuel us today in our yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.